Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Oh, brother. Mm-hmm. It's still a mystery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Will you hear my cry? Won't you hear my plea? Cause I'll never know, I'll never know how it feels, how it feels, how it feels, how it feels. You're actually hearing Ain't It Fair, oh, It Ain't Fair, I'm sorry, by The Roots, featuring Bilal from the Detroit original motion picture soundtrack. We are going to talk about the movie Detroit here in New Haven today. Later in the show, we'll be talking about whether or not uh, Game of Thrones fans are annoying if you are not a Game of Thrones fan. In other words, when you uh, look at your Twitter feed on Monday morning or even Sunday night or go into work and approach the now mostly mythical water cooler and people are talking about something that you don't care about. Um, have they just gone too far? Are they too obsessed? I say they. It's actually I'm, I'm one of those people. Uh, and then towards the end, Sean Spicer is now making evident his desire to be on Saturday Night Live. Um, we're going to just explore that question. First of all, you know, is it something you should even ask for? And then should your wish be granted? All right. So that's what we're going to be talking about. Let me tell you who's here. First of all, before I tell you who's here, let me say this is a, the final show I don't know why anyone would care except us, but this is the final show that we will be doing for the Audubon Street studios of WNPR, which are closing. Um, these are, I've always said to people that these studios here in New Haven are not actually a phase of radio technology. It's more like some Italian science fiction writer in 1931 was trying to picture what radio technology would be like in the year 2000 and, and got some things wrong, basically. Um, so anyway, I, we, we will leave here with mixed feelings, many happy memories, but some mixed feelings. And we are going to eventually reopen over at Gateway College here in New Haven. We'll have studios there, and uh, we're looking forward to those. They will have things like clocks, which unfortunately the Italian science fiction writer did not – imagine that anybody would want to know what time it was when they were doing radio. So we don't have one of those here. Um, all right. Now, we're very excited to have Lucy Gelman, uh, editor of The Arts Paper and the host of WNHH Radio's Kitchen Sink. Kate Russian, a teaching artist for the Connecticut Office of the Arts and a Pushcart Prize-nominated poet. And Brian Slattery, 
arts editor for the New Haven Independent and a producer at WNHH Radio and a musician and a novelist and lots of other stuff. Um, all right. So uh, we are going to begin with uh, this movie directed by Catherine Bigelow. Uh, it is the story of um, one portion of the 1967 riots uh, in Detroit and the police actions taken um, as a result of those. Uh, it tries to do a lot of different things. It is primarily the story of the Algiers Motel, uh, a place where police essentially held a group of young black men and two white women uh, more or less hostage for hours and hours and hours, uh, physically and psychologically torturing them in the process, killing several of them. Um, But it also tries a little bit to sort of set that in some kind of Um, historical and chronological milieu with varying success, I think we all think. So um, uh, this is a little biscuit or a wafer that we have to break in half. And in some ways we have to talk about what this movie is and whether it's a good movie or not. I think the other half of the biscuit is the question of Catherine Bigelow's involvement. There's been a lot of questions about whether such a primal African-American story should be told by a white filmmaker and a white screenwriter. So that'll be the second part of our conversation. Uh, Lucy, you're from Detroit. I am. Uh, they didn't make you want to go see this movie. Uh, now that you've seen it, how do you feel about it? I No, so I, I didn't want to see the movie to begin with. Um, not only because Catherine Bigelow is a white filmmaker, but also this wasn't filmed in Detroit. And um, I, so I grew up on the east side of Detroit, but my mom grew up on the west side of Detroit and was 10 during the riots. And the first thing she said to me when probably the trailer for this came out was, I'm not going to see it. Here are the reasons why. You know, it, it was incredibly traumatic for her and her family. And I sort of wasn't planning on seeing it. Um, and found it very hard to watch. I have a low tolerance for violence in movies in general. It it could be any movie, um, but especially this and, and the way that violence, and we'll get into this, is almost, I think, sort of fetishized in the movie. Um, the way it is shot as a war movie and the lack of context about the city of Detroit itself really um, left me kind of full of sour grapes about this film. Um, before I go to the other panelists, uh, the film uh, stars a bunch of really terrific actors, some of whom, like Anthony Mackie, you've seen in other contexts. John uh, Boyega, you know from uh, the, the latest iteration of Star Wars from The Force Awakens, also from Attack the Block, a terrific movie that he's also in. You're going to hear a little bit of him, I think. We had to pull this clip right out of the um, trailer for the movie. Uh, this uh, happens, I think, uh, if I'm placing this incorrectly, uh, later in the movie when the character played by Boyega is being questioned about what happened. What happened at the motel? You don't know, I tell you. I was working security by Wisconsin. And on Tuesday night, we heard gunfire coming from the area near the Algiers. Police was there. There was a lot of shooting. When I went in there, Three kids have been killed. No. So they were killed right before you got there. Sir. You carry a 38, right? A revolver. You carry a revolver. I do have a 38. You ever shoot anyone? didn't do it. 
Please. Oh, here we go. All right, because it's from the trailer, I think that sounds a little bit different from the way it sounds in the movie. But you can get the picture. So, um, well, yeah, Brian, I'll go to you next. Um, Lucy was saying that she has a fairly low tolerance for violence. Um, even if you had a fairly high talent tolerance for violence, you might find this movie uh, assaultive in certain ways. And this is also something that you brought up. First thing you brought up in yeah. your email about this. Yeah, for sure. Um, over the over the years, my own tolerance for violence has plummeted a lot, and it gives uh, for watching it. I mean, I think. Uh, I mean, long story short, because I've I I feel that I've seen and read about enough episodes of real life violence that I constantly question why they're ever used in <laughs> in fiction of any kind. Um, but the um, yeah, I mean, I I I don't think that I I don't. I always ask whether the violence is being exploitative, and I and I and I did feel watching this movie that there is um, real uh, there were, there were good intentions behind the movie, and that you know the violence was meant to be really difficult to watch. You know, I I actually think it's worse when the violence is not meant to be difficult to watch and it's sort of aestheticized into something you know beautiful or you know something you're supposed to cheer about. Um, and this movie did not do that. And there are a lot of there are a lot of sort of pitfalls that this movie could have fallen into but didn't. Um, you know, I, I, being a Hollywood movie, I waited for a little while to see whether they would shoehorn a romance somehow into this thing, which, you know, (laughs) other movies have done Mm. and, you know, it, it, it didn't do a lot of those sort of like super cheap things. Um, but at the end of the movie, I did also find myself kind of wondering why it had been made. (laughs) You know, there was a, there was a sort of larger, so what question that, hadn't quite been answered for me when, when I finished the movie, even though there were some things that I felt that the movie had done well. Or Kate, you said there was also some basic human story that wasn't being told. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, if to use a, a, a cooking metaphor, I felt that all of the ingredients were there, all the right ingredients were there, but I felt the, the balance was off. And I felt that what was missing was um, a depiction of one of the protagonists, Larry, who'd wanted to be a singer. And we don't get any sense, we don't get any images of the life he lost before that horrible mm. night mm. Uh, at the Algiers Motel. So I, I I think the balance of the whole movie was off. Yeah, I, I feel like, you know, watching this movie, I mean, I, 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 ultimately, I probably have a slightly higher opinion of this movie than most of the people sitting in this room, but only slightly. And I do feel as though it, it didn't make its mind up about what sort of movie it was at the beginning. I thought, mm-hmm. is this a movie like sort of Crash with a lot of intersecting stories? This character played, played by John Boyega, essentially a very well-meaning guy who's a uh, security guard who kind of tries to intervene but maybe doesn't intervene enough. Uh, you know, his life intersects with uh, this trio of white cops led by a guy named Krauss who is – very weirdly sadistic, but I mean, there's quite a lot of focus on him. And then there's this group, the Dramatics, of whom Larry is the lead singer. They're trying to kind of either get home or not get home in the night. There's also these two white girls who've turned up at the Algiers Motel for uh, whatever adventurous reasons. And I thought, is so is this like a big cast story that through some kind of ensemble perspective is trying to tell this really big story of Detroit in 67? Or are there specific threads of the story that are important or are none of the people as important as 
I mean, Lucy, one of the things that I, I think where you emerge from this movie aware that you have seen something that under other circumstances, less well-meaning circumstances, you might call torture porn. You're just sitting there for a really long time watching this horrible situation, which Bigelow wants you to experience. Yeah. I think it's a horrible situation. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's true. But I, I find myself thinking, well, what movie is this anyway? Um, I don't know. Is that... Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the the word that we're sort of dancing around is focus and, and whether or not Catherine Bigelow ever gets there. And, and maybe she intends to, but I don't know that she ever says this is the focus of the film. Hmm. And it suffers from that. So so that's part of it. But um, I, I know, Colin, one of my issues was Detroit as a character is totally absent in this movie with the exception of documentary footage at the beginning. How how could it have been made more of a character? Like, what do you think is not there? Well, I just felt like there was no specificity. You don't get an idea of where this is happening in the city. So Detroit is a huge, huge city. It's mm. you know, it's massive. Um, you don't really get an idea for where the tanks are are rolling down the street. So that's um, it's it's probably meant to be pronounced Livinois, but it's Livernois because uh, no one in Detroit appreciates <laughs> that it was founded by, uh, you know, French fur trappers. And um, and and then there's kind of no, like, I, I don't think the characters act particularly Midwestern or particularly um, sort of Detroit in their demeanor, their, the way they pronounce their A's, you know, little things like that. And of course, not everyone's going to see this movie and take issue with it because it isn't made specifically for Detroiters. But that does raise the question of who is this movie made for? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really good question. Three of the key actors are British, which may explain why they didn't get it the exact, although I think their <laughs> accents are fabulous. But uh, both the incredibly evil uh, cop, Krauss, and of course, John Boyega, one of the girls uh, in the motel, all, all British actors. One of them's from Game of Thrones, which sets up the thing we're going to be talking about later here. But um, but yeah, Kate, I think that's a, that is a sort of a fair question. This thing begins with this kind of montage of art that's very sort of Jacob Lawrence, Romeo Bearden-like, this kind of cueing us that this is some sort of way of trying to connect us to a history. Um, but ultimately, it seems much more like this one particular situation, this one really brutal situation that may be different from what the real history of this story is. Yeah, I, I felt that the the film did not give enough of the historical context. Uh, it did not talk about the... Um, the housing segregation and attacks about people upon black people moving into public housing, say in the in the forties and in forty three, that was sort of the the backdrop and the roots of what happened in sixty seven. Uh, I was glad to see the Jacob Lawrence, but uh, when he talked about the, the the Great Migration, that was summarizing the Great Migration of African Americans from the South to the industrial North. But I thought it was telling that it left out scenes of lynching and the Ku Klux Klan, which is also what African-Americans were fleeing. So that when you see a lot of images of black people running, throwing rocks, throwing Molotov cocktails, you really have no idea from the film why they're doing this. I don't think there's enough context. Well, so yeah, is the idea ahead. that this movie – 
maybe it should have been a miniseries. <laughs> you know, that well, that might have been more of – I mean yeah. it's two hours and 23 minutes long or right. something like that. We feel like it's a pretty damn long movie because right. so much of it is this incredibly claustrophobic experience. I, I don't know if you could get to what Kate's talking about without going that route. Which, I mean, which is something that, you know, we've, we've seen done before, right? Like, I mean, The Wire mm-hmm. is sort of that thing where, you, you know, you, you spend so much time uh, in Baltimore, in The Wire's version of Baltimore, that you do feel like you have a much richer sense of the place. Yeah, I, you know, I, I didn't need a half an hour or whatever it was of the torture in the Algiers Motel. I think mm-hmm. more than that. I think more than that. But I think she's pretty committed to that. I mean, I think she wants you to feel... She wants you to start saying, make this stop. Yeah, what are you going to say? But there's also, you have no idea. I'm sorry to keep harping on this, but you have no idea of what the Algiers is in 1967 in Detroit. It could be a Best Western, yeah. you know, the way it's treated in this movie. The Algiers was so hot in 1960. Like, people whispered about it. It was the cool thing to talk about. Mm-hmm. And that's lost. Or or I felt yeah. like that was lost. So many things. I mean, she does try to do too much, and there are these things that are picked up and dropped. For example, there's, at the beginning, we see... Uh, a black cop who seems to be doing, you know, some of the work that you, you wouldn't even really want him to be doing, and and he clearly has a very complicated relationship with his own community. And then I think he's gone. I don't think we ever see that guy again, right? He's like disappears. We never see him again. Um, seems and, like a detective. Yeah, who's but, just as brutal as yeah, and disrespectful as he a white seems detective. very important for about five minutes, and then he disappears, <laughs> never right. to return again. There's a ra- re- very odd scene where one of the characters eventually kind of escapes and is flings himself into the arms of this kind of Mr. Rogers white cop who just is I mean I think in some ways the her attempts to kind of create characters who signal balance to us are a little bit ham-fisted. Well, I mean, part of what part of what this movie is really rubbing up against is the difficulty of shoehorning a non-fiction event into like a, a fictional construct which is you know which is essentially what she's trying to do the idea that we're looking for a main character is something that we only care about when we're watching fiction mm-hmm. but we care about it here right like we like everyone is saying we wish we had focus like mm-hmm. usually a main character brings that kind of focus but there's there's something irresponsible about assigning main character status to somebody in a non-fiction event mm-hmm. so you know? uh, we have to pivot away from that a little bit towards the controversy which attends the film and that is the notion of Catherine Bigelow a white filmmaker accompanied by a white screenwriter telling this very primal African-American story and and Lucy I, I think I understood you to say that that was one reason you were reluctant to see the film in the first place it was a reason I was reluctant to see the f- I mean it's also so Catherine Bigelow chose not to shoot this film in Detroit which I found offensive I as a Detroiter I found that a Expensive, um, and it's probably because it's expensive to shoot a movie in, in Detroit. It's less expensive to go elsewhere. But um, uh, I totally lost my train of thought, Colin. <laughs> well, so I'm just curious. I mean, the the fact that it's a white filmmaker also put yes. you off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I um, you know, I I tried to go into it with an open mind. I didn't want to see the movie. I was dragged by someone to see the movie, <laughs> but tried to go into it with an open mind nonetheless. And found that she I think she misses the mark I I don't specifically think um, however well-intentioned it may be it is her story to tell and I don't think the artistry is there you know one one thing that Brian said before we came into the studio was does she do the work and I think the answer to that is no and maybe part of that is her whiteness maybe 90% of that is her whiteness Um, and and maybe part of it is just that this was not the right story for her. And, um, you know, it, it should have been 
in different hands and maybe a person of color, a woman of color or a man of color should have had this story. Yeah, I'm really intrigued by that concept of it's not her story to tell. Do you, I mean, do you feel that way? I'm not willing to go there. You know, whatever the subject, I want my filmmaker to make it work. Mm. And um, I want the film, my filmmaker to do a good job of telling a compelling story a compelling human story about characters I can believe in. Now, I read that um, Catherine uh, Bigelow was saying that she wanted to help create empathy uh, around some of the issues that we're dealing with in our society today. But I think that her emphasis on the diabolical, crazy, rogue cop actually gets in the way of empathy because lots of people can say, well, that's not me. I don't know anybody like that. Uh, I'm a police officer and I'm not like that. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that the portrayal of the bad cop combined with this long, long sequence of violence and torture can actually have the reverse effect and cause people to back away emotionally. That's a really interesting point. I hadn't really thought about it that way. So, Brian, you come from the world of music where, I mean, this gets really complicated too. I mean, one of, one of the worlds you come from. <laughs> Although, I mean... But, the, but music has the, 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 the good thing about talking about music in this way is that it happens over and over and over and over again really right. quickly. <laughs> well, so and this is not an original observation uh, with me, no, but I mean, right. for example, Bob Dylan sings about Hurricane Carter and George Jackson and Hattie Carroll. Yeah. I don't think anybody ever said, well, those aren't Bob Dylan stories to tell. Right. Or maybe people did. I don't know. Right. I mean, when I was talking with Lucy before about whether you can do the work or not, I mean, that's that's a, a among musicians, that's a really uh, typical thing to say. You know, this this idea that everybody needs to stay in their cultural box is something that audiences feel and musicians feel less. And mm. when musicians are hiring people, it's really just a question of whether they can play it the way that the person hiring them wants them to play it. Mm. And, you know, o- over time, you know, this means that, that a lot of music has been played by people of pretty diverse backgrounds. Like a lot of bands have a really mixed group of people because like whoever wants to put the project together is just finding the people who can play, you know, yeah. the end. Um, but that said, you know, every time that I'm in a situation where I'm playing music that, that isn't mine um, and audience members come up to me afterward, there's a part of me that's ready to be told that I did it wrong. Mm. And when I was younger, that happened a lot more often. And, <laughs> <laughs> and you learn very quickly from those things. You know, you, you're, you're told, you know, you, nice try, but you got this and this and this and this wrong. Mm. And, you know, then it's my job to do more homework. And, you know, it's, in the past couple of years, those, finally, those sorts of critiques have died down. And it's been more about, like, thank you for doing homework. And I think that that's a really, really important aspect of it is that when you watch a movie like Detroit, you say like it's for for Mark Bull and for Catherine Bigelow, there's a lot of homework that they need to do. Mm. And to some extent, there's a lot of just hanging out that they need to do. And the question of, I think, whether this whether the whether the movie hangs right for for the largest number of people will depend on like whether they've just spent time being there. You know, and and just absorbing things and being quiet, you know, mm-hmm. and listening to people instead of, you know, coming at them with with an agenda that they already have. Lucy, I could tell you had a thing you wanted to say. Oh, I I think Brian hit it on the head. So, uh, you know, maybe more than saying whose story is this to tell, there's the question of 
could you, Brian and I joke about this, could you defend a story that you've written uh, in a bar at two in the morning after you've had three beers or, or something like that? If someone comes up to you and says, <laughs> I don't agree with this story and, and here's why, could you say, this is why I was right to to do this, this is how it holds up? And on that test, I, th- I think Catherine Bigelow fails. Hmm. I'm, uh, the- that, I think that might be true. Although I, I before this is done, I want to offer a little bit of a defense of, of this movie. Although I have to say, I really don't like Catherine Bigelow's movies very much. I, I loved Point Break, but since then, I didn't like Zero Dark Thirty, and I didn't really like The Hurt Locker all that much. Um, but so, Kate, I think the one question that comes we come back to is, what do we want people to do? What do we want creators to do? You know, and what I think is, I want. Lin-Manuel Miranda to tell the story of Hamilton in hip-hop with actors of color. And, and you know, even though, like, these aren't all great movies, I want filmmakers like Edward Zwick to make Glory, uh, uh, you know, and, and I, uh, you know, even, and, and Hidden Figures is also made well, by... John Sayles is quite good at those yeah. sort of and, things. Yeah, and sometimes they're bad. Like, like, you could argue that The Help is not a very good movie. On the other hand, you could also argue that it offered Viola Davis and, uh, and Octavia Spencer opportunities to do some really incredibly great work. So I feel like I want white filmmakers to make movies about black experience. I want black filmmakers to make uh, uh, movies about black experience and black pain. And I want Anna DuVernay to know that she can go now make A Wrinkle in Time, which is what she's directing right now with a bunch of white people, uh, because, like, I want everybody to do everything, right? Ultimately, these yeah. stories have to be told over and over again, and they'll get told right and wrong, and, you know, there'll be hits and there'll be misses, but if everybody does it enough, then maybe we start to get towards the truth. All right, that's the end of my speech. Yeah, I, you know, I, 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 again, I'd go back to the point you made originally, Colin, uh, about focus, What what's the main... What's what? What's the heart of the movie? And again, I think the heart of the movie is the human story of Larry, his family, his friends, his neighborhood, his dreams, and how that horrible night upended his whole life, and how he was able to come out of that. Uh, and I think that despite this long, intense uh, torture scene. It comes off, I thought, very clunky and oddly static, especially with uh, the John Boyega uh, security guard character just kind of standing there doing a lot of standing around looking. It was very clunky. So what was his conversation like with his family when he went home? That's not there, but there was time to put so much more. And again, I think it needed more time to cook, to simmer, to come together, and to get the balance right. And yeah. I found that I I wanted more from the John Boyega character, who I think is very good, but we meet his mom very briefly. Um, and I, I, I mean, I wanted more of her. I wanted to know who this woman was. So well, we're going to have to stop now just because we want to move on to the next topic. Um, this is – the one thing that I just will say on behalf of this movie is that – yeah, it's a it's a mess in a lot of ways. That's the thing I'm saying on behalf of the movie. But um, it's a mess in a lot of ways. But <laughs> like over the last few days, and I, this is not a subject from which I feel particularly estranged. I mean, I raised a son of color, and a lot of his friends are people of color, and I've sort of. But you know, over the last few days, every once in a while, I'll just be driving past some 
uh, African American person who's walking to something uh, of all kinds of different ages, and I, I just and I, I the, that movie has popped into my head a few times, thinking because so much of the movie is about oh well. If you take a wrong turn somewhere, if you make the bad decision, if you go to the Algiers Motel instead of doing something, like horrible things can happen. And I just – it has at least got that little part of me wake, woke – I guess woke to use the, the current expression back up again to say these are all just people just trying to enjoy their lives and get through their days and walk down the street just the way I do. And there, there is a way in which this movie drives home that point that in some ways the, you know, the, the consequences of any random choice can be pretty dire particularly in situations like that. So I, I give her credit for that. The movie is Detroit. See it. Don't see it. <laughs> if you do see it, don't get mad at us. We kind of warned you. Um, we'll, be on, we'll be back with more. Um, so I think the first person who ever said the words Game of Thrones to me is sitting right in this room right now. Uh, and uh, and it's not Lucy and it's not Kate. Um, so – but since that time, back then it was a book. Um, I know. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. was a book. Uh, and uh, Brian Slatter was talking to me about it. We were actually doing a show about things that people are unable to finish. Yes. Uh, things that creators are unable to finish. and. Obviously, George R. R. Martin famously has had problems with this. Meanwhile, the creators of the HBO TV series have had fewer problems. They've kept surging ahead. Uh, the show is now watched in 170 countries, legally watched in 170 countries, uh, illegally watched in probably all the others. Um, and uh, so it's the most watched TV series in the world, probably in the history of television. Uh, but that doesn't mean everybody watches it. Not everybody watches it. In fact, I think nobody else in this room besides me watches it. Um, it's it has sort of filtered out into almost everything when Donald Trump started talking about fire and fury in North Korea. Uh, everybody ran to their Twitter accounts. I, by everybody, I mean me and two other people probably and said, isn't it great that Donald Trump has hired George R. R. Martin <laughs> as a speechwriter? Um, so it's like a, it's a series of jokes that maybe you get or you don't get. But the biggest problem is what we used to call water cooler moments, which is according to at least one piece in the Washington Post, many workers have long felt excluded when the office chatter turns to sports. Now it's Game of Thrones. Uh, it's certainly also true on social media. So – uh, we have the perfect panel in a way. Like, not, like, how come you don't watch Game of Thrones, Mister 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 Gateway Drug? See, because I because I do love fantasy. I, yeah. I you know I, I don't know I don't yeah. know. I think I think when it started, um, I, I I was really busy, and then I was just way too far behind, and yeah. I it it just feels like. You know, I need to I need to get the flu for like a month and then I can catch up. And that would, that would be about it. That would be the ultimate be careful what you wish for statement. But um, <laughs> so I don't know. Did it, I mean, OK, go ahead. Yeah. I the only way I encounter Game of Thrones is through clips, various clips and through the New York Times crossword puzzle. And it actually comes up fairly often. And so I look up the answers because I know I don't know them. But I did find this hilarious clip of um, Leslie Jones and Stephen Colbert watching Game of Thrones no, it's, I think it's together. Seth, Seth Meyer, isn't it? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. Leslie Jones and Seth yes, Meyer. Yes, Seth yeah. Meyer. Sorry. And uh, it's called uh, Game of Jones. <laughs> and Leslie Jones is giving this hilarious commentary while they're watching it. And now I know who Varys is because he came in and sat down with them. It was hysterical. And so now as far as Game of Thrones goes, 
I'm good. So uh, that makes it sound like you, you kind of undermines the premise of this piece that we read, that it's annoying to have a lot of people around you kicking all these little tripwires and making little references to things that just aren't, aren't part of your world. Yeah, I'm not around those people that much. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that, that could be. Lucy? Oh, I, I mean, I, I found the piece just charming and funny more mm. than anything else. I um, I don't watch Game of Thrones. I work with a bunch of people who have small children, so oh. often they're just talking about their small children and not, you know, science fiction or, or fantasy or television. Um, but my dad loves Game of Thrones, mm. and I find this very funny because he's um, like a super exacting math science guy who's very into technical sort of stuff in the world around him. And I think this is his escape from uh the current political situation which he like can't really handle so sometimes he'll tell me what's going on in game of thrones and why it's so great and why i should watch it um and i never do i i feel as though i mean i've had this experience on on facebook where my ex-sister-in-law uh posted this thing saying something like uh, am i the only person in america who has no interest in watching game of thrones and all these People sort of chimed in and said, no, I'm so, so with you, um, as though that were some kind of cause uh, and that, that people who felt that way were oppressed somehow. And I mean I think there is at least a sense – I mean in the era of Seinfeld, I didn't watch Seinfeld. I've caught up with all the Seinfelds ever since then. But if you came into work after the day after Seinfeld and you didn't know what Mulva was or you know the soup Nazi or something, you felt a little bit out of it. This – this may feel bigger for people, though, because, like, it's – yeah, you have something to say about well, that. Well, I think that and also because what we're experiencing now is not just what's going on at work but also what's going on on social media. Right. And for me, I will see every Monday – like, Sunday night and Monday and even Tuesday without fail – uh, some reappropriation of Gloria Steinem's There's a Special Place in Hell for Women Who Vote for Bernie Sanders. There's a Special Place in Hell for Game of Thrones spoilers. And people get so upset if someone says like, wow, I can't believe so-and-so was killed off on Game of Thrones last night. And I, I find it like pretty hilarious. I um, I, I sent the image around, but I'm on the Citizen Reporting website, C-Click Fix, all the time because, um, you know, if a municipal issue comes up, I want to catch it. Um and someone reported this week that they were having bad reception for for watching Game of Thrones. And I just burst out <laughs> laughing when it came into my inbox. They have C-Click Fix in King's Landing, too, in Game of Thrones. So Is that a yeah, place? Yeah, that's a place. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. See? <laughs> See? Uh, I mean, I, I should say I don't feel the sense of a cause. I mean, I'm not – I don't feel yeah. oppressed because I don't watch Game of Thrones. <laughs> but – I mean, I, I actually, I mean, for what it's worth, I'm really pleased that George R. R. Martin found his way out of his writer's block situation by just getting a TV production company to finish it for him. Right. I think that's amazing. And more people should do that if they can. <laughs> I mean, but, yeah, go ahead. You know, then my second thing that I like is, is watching people who are huge fans of Game of Thrones uh, attempt to justify why they like it, but then still say they don't like fantasy. That, it, that a, pleases me immensely, yeah. watching people try it, to reason their way out It pleases you because it just so obviously is the – It's a fantasy series. Uh, like just embrace it and love it for what it is. But that whole thing of you like I, I don't like fantasy. I can't, I can't deal with it. That's also – that's kind of a thing. I always ask people, yeah. how do you feel about the Tempest and Midsummer Night's Dream? Because, Absolutely. Because like fairies are right. not real either. Right. So I – I just feel that people shouldn't be guilty pleasure watching Game of Thrones. They should just embrace their inner fantasy geek and, and you know, move on with their lives in a fuller way. I, I mean, in some ways, 
Kate, there's a way in which pop culture always intrudes on our lives, right? And and nobody can watch and listen to and experience and love and like everything. Um, and and so I don't know whether Game of Thrones, clearly not for you. You managed to create a life where you don't feel oppressed by people who feel like some that this is this master narrative uh, that can explain all kinds of things and and enrich everybody's life and everybody's understanding of the current moment or give Lucy's father escape from it. But is there any part of you that wishes people would shut up about this? You know, I'm somebody who for years has been reading the uh, book reviews in the New York Times and then, you know, I can talk about them at whatever party or cocktail <laughs> cocktail reception I'm at. I'm I'm just good with all. It's it's good. I can I can talk about Game of Thrones. I can, I can get in there with the best of them. There you go. Uh well, there not for nothing is there a show on public radio called Dinner Party Download. I guess that's the whole idea. All right, we're going to switch topics here. Um uh, everybody knows uh, who Sean Spicer is, uh, partly because of who Sean Spicer is, but probably also because of the lampooning of him done by Melissa McCarthy on Saturday Night Live. Now Sean Spicer is out of his White House job, and at least according to one report, wants in on Saturday Night Live. And it, uh, it's uh, Us Weekly, an incredibly reputable journalism uh, entity, reports well, they probably would know something like this. An insider reveals in the new issue of Us Weekly that the New York-born political aide, Sean Spicer, is angling to appear on Saturday Night Live. He is asking people about getting on. It was his idea. Uh, but now he's ready to get in on the joke. He asks someone he knows that is close to a cast member to help him, explains the insider. Yes, he criticized SNL before, but he's changed his tune. He wants to make a cameo. Um it's like a reverse Al Franken. I love it. <laughs> well, that's like a whole other topic. I mean, I just yeah. did a thing with Al Franken, but I, I, I'm also keenly aware of the fact that the U.S. Senate uh, in two years could also include Kid Rock, Caitlyn Jenner, and Danny Tarkanian. So right. and we're on a very strange arc here. Yeah. But so one of the questions about satire, Lucy, is – like if if you want to do something, it's it's like there. I feel as though the premise of satire is violated. The cartoonist Brooke Brethard used to do Bloom County. I guess he does it now again. He he told me one time it's almost impossible to insult somebody so successfully that they don't ask for an original of the cartoon. Uh, like they want to have it and frame it and stuff like that. So I don't know. Is it is there a problem right there? Like if you want to be on Saturday Night Live and you're Sean Spicer, should you be told no? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think he should be on Saturday Night Live. Uh, at, at, I mean, a, a featurette would be really funny mm. um, because he is, I think, inherently funny without trying to be so. Um, you know, I, I keep thinking of, like, we, his press conferences so often went off the rails, but also the story about him, like, stealing the intern's mini fridge from the White House <laughs> and running down a driveway and being spotted by some, you know, unidentified source. Um but, Hiding but, in bushes. Yeah, <laughs> probably. Um, no, he but, did. He oh, hid in bushes at one point. Oh, I didn't yeah, see yeah. that. I, I just, oh, yeah. I just uh, saw the quote. You know, oh, I saw him running down the the driveways. Well, I think he hid in bushes during the Comey thing. Yes. I think it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. At night. At night. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, look, there's like uh, none of us uh, would be good if we had Sean Murray here too because we could get a comedian <laughs> in on the act. But. Um, the other question that I have, it's sort of an artistic question. Like I understand that every once in a while it's going to be kind of fun on a show like Saturday Night Live to have Amy Poehler doing uh, or or uh, 
Kate McKinnon doing uh, Hillary Clinton in a bar, and then suddenly the real Hillary Clinton is sitting in the next bar stool, and that's very funny in its own way. But by and large, I think in the comedy universe of Saturday Night Live, Melissa McCarthy is Sean Spicer. Yeah. That's like, you know, I mean, if you let well, Sean Spicer on, yeah. I think that he should be made to play someone else. That's all. <laughs> like, that's how you do it. Right. You, you, you have to – now he has to play Melissa McCarthy maybe. And and the other thing, Kate, is, I mean, this is one of the paths to rehabilitation, right? If you're willing to go on someplace like this and take your lumps, that that sort of washes you in a way? Absolutely. You know, I, I never watched Game of Thrones, but I did <laughs> used to watch The Apprentice. Yeah. And when I was first on your show, Colin, uh, during the uh, election, run-up to the election, I was – I couldn't understand why Donald Trump would want to ruin his brand – uh, by talking about birtherism and saying that uh, President Obama wasn't a citizen. I was so naive. I did not know that that was Donald Trump's brand. Mm-hmm. So as Donald Trump is pushing Sean Spicer out the door, he congratulates him on his great ratings. So, of course, Sean Spicer is going to go to Saturday Night Live. And, of course, Lauren Michaels is going to say yes, because it's not the YWCA. It's NBC. (laughs) Well, that's true. NBC. And I'll just quickly say that um, one of the things that has occurred to me, particularly reading Franken's uh, most recent book, where he explains that they have – that he has never been allowed to host Weekend Update. I mean because his political sympathies kind of emerged and were very visible early and that they at least maintain this idea on Saturday Night Live that they don't have a political point of view. Uh, Jim Downey, who creates most of their political content, is actually kind of a moderate conservative uh, kind of Republican voting guy. When you think of the number of conservative entertainers who've come out of the show, Dennis Miller, Adam Sandler, Victoria Jackson, John Lovitz, these are all, you know, the unusual Republican voting entertainers from late night comedy, but there's a whole bunch of them. So there's there's a way in which we think of Saturday Night Live as this very transgressive place where where things are challenged. But I mean, of course, Donald Trump during the campaign was allowed to guest host Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. And Lauren Michaels needs his ratings too. <laughs> <laughs> but I love Brian. I love your idea of having Sean Spicer play, like someone I, else. I don't even know who. Yeah, but it could be anything. Yeah. I think that they they could have him on every skit playing a different character, right? And just see how he does. Like do what you would do with anybody <laughs> who is a new cast member to Saturday Night Live. He's going to take all of Kyle Mooney's spots and That's just say, fair. "Go for it, man!" Like if you if you can if you can hang with us, then you get to stay on the show. I don't think we want to see him do that shirtless <laughs> Putin thing. Uh, <laughs> but but I, just just to wrap wow. this up because we want to get to endorsements. But I, I, the other thing I think is, I mean, and I think Kate's absolutely right about this. I mean. NBC in particular is this sort of animal that just devours everything and kind of processes everything pretty much the same way. So, um, but but network television does that in general. Scaramucci uh, is going to be on with George Stephanopoulos on Sunday morning. He's going to be on with Stephen Colbert on, I think, Monday night. Um, there's our ability to sort of separate all this stuff out, real people from fake people and uh, it's it's over. I mean, and in particular, NBC is this horizontally integrated thing that includes Access Hollywood and Saturday Night Live and MSNBC and Morning Joe and I mean, it's and Chuck Todd and Seth Meyers and it's just everything is all kind of splashed out in pretty much the same way. All right, we have to take a break. We're gonna we did lose uh, two wonderful musicians on the same day, Barbara Cook and Glenn Campbell. Unfortunately, there's no song that includes both of them. This is Glenn. Everybody's talking at me 
Don't hear a word to say it Only the echoes of my mind People stop and stare at Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf, with help from Betsy Kaplan. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jim Broadbent. On Monday's show, we'll be back with news from over the weekend on The Scramble. And now, back to Colin. Jim Broadbent is also on Game of Thrones this year. All right, so, uh, Brian Slattery, um, what have you got for us? What would you like to recommend? Um, this is sort of an old... The, the, the books are relatively old, but it's they are new to me, which is that I... This summer, I found myself plowing through the short stories of Kelly Link, who is mm. this person who writes these um, – that in keeping with the whole you know fantasy for people who don't like fantasy thing, she, she combines literary fiction and fantasy in a really interesting and kind of unsettling way. And each of her short stories is proven to be pretty delightful. And she's got, I think, like four books out now of them. Hmm. So All right. The work of Kelly Link, yeah. L-I-N-K. L-I-N-K. I've never heard of her before in yeah. my life. Uh, all right. Uh, as I do these endorsements, I should just say who you are just in case there's no time at the end. That's Brian Slattery, arts editor for the New Haven Independent and a producer at WNHH Radio. Lucy Gelman, editor of the Arts Paper and host of WNHH Radio's Kitchen Sink. What are you going to recommend or endorse this week? Yeah, I have, I have two quick ones. So the first is an exhibition at Art Space since we're in New Haven. Art Space is a great little um, gallery and space in the Ninth Square neighborhood. And their current show is um, is 18 youth photographers. The show is called Mast- Masturbatory uh, Delusions, which comes from a James Baldwin quotation. And it was the original working title for this show, too. But. <laughs> um, and and it's it's really these photographs really celebrate and probe New Haven. And um, I'm I'm so proud that we have students in the city that are so insightful and um, and excited. But but then I want to unendorse the museum, which is a museum I was at last week in Washington D.C. It's for corporate hacks by corporate hacks. NBC features prominently, and no one should ever go. Wow. Well, the, their, their website is useful, the thing where you can see every front page every yes. single day. That's yeah, and, and that's outside, so you can see it for free. It is, yeah. It's by far the best part. But the, the museum itself, is a, yeah. it's just a terrible place. But uh, I, I will just double down on the idea that if, if, you, if there's a day where you want to see what every single front page in America did with its mix of news on that day, on the museum website, you can do that. And it's an incredibly useful tool at times. All right, but don't go to the place apparently. Oh, good. I have to do the introduction thing. Uh, Kate Russian is a teaching – Kate actually understood the format that I just set up for myself better than I did. Uh, Kate Russian is a teaching artist for the Connecticut Office of the Arts and a Pushcart Prize-nominated poet. All right. So our discussion of the film Detroit uh, reminded me of one of my favorite films of all times, Nothing But a Man, starring Abby Lincoln and Ivan Dixon and Yafet Koto. And it was directed by Michael Romer who has uh, escaped the Nazis on the kinder transport and teaches at Yale, and people should check out Nothing But a Man. Uh, also, I just learned about a public arts project called SiteProjects.org site here in New Haven, mm-hmm. and they are doing a light installation on the Route 34 connector, and they're having a public celebration on Tuesday, August 22nd, at Gateway Community College, and it's free. 
and Laura Clark is the executive director. That's siteprojects.org. All right. So um, people in New Haven are spoiled uh, in lots of ways, including the fact you walk around and just people rush out of doorways and offer you really terrific coffee. You're just minding your own business. And people say, look, here's some – it was grown at a Burundi water station and it's micro-roasted and, you know, and you go, oh, that looks good. And in in, in Hartford, we haven't always had that, although we've started to get some new coffee shops. And so Sarah's downtown is really terrific. Now there's one called Story and Soil over on Capitol Avenue. And I went over there yesterday just because I wanted to – give them some of my business and because I'm really happy to have them there and they're obviously very serious about coffee and they have all those kinds of coffee, special little coffees that you might see down here in New Haven, I mean, special coffee beans. And then there was something on, on the menu called a Spanish latte and I'd never had a Spanish latte. I didn't even know what one was. And, and the way that they do it is a little bit different, I think, because I looked it up afterwards. The way that they do it, they make it – they put a little bit of honey into it. And I thought, I'm not going to like this, but I'm going to have it anyway. And it was just like the perfect thing in the afternoon. You know, there's – I always feel like 3.30 in the afternoon is the tipping point. Mm-hmm. Like are you going to ingest more caffeine at 3.30 in the afternoon or are you going to give up and just start to get you – know? And just take a nap. <laughs> yeah, just take a nap and just <laughs> give in. You know? yes, it's and, nap time. And, and so sometimes I feel like, coffee. you know, like, yeah, like taking the coffee – I'm making a particular choice. But this was like a, it felt like a really nice middle ground, you know, the Spanish latte, a little bit of honey. And I, I just loved it. Anyway, so I'm so happy to see this nice, uh, very hip little coffee shop uh, on Capitol Avenue in Hartford in a little block there that's starting to be uh, a little hip, hipper in general in terms of uh, various kinds of food and drink and stuff that they have there. Um, I, I just got to kill one more minute. So I'll just say the best time I've had this summer, I had last Friday night, I think, at least culturally. Culturally, anyway, um, uh, there's an organization in Hartford that uh, is doing this thing where they take over the stop, the, a particular stop on the um, Connecticut Fast Track line. Uh, it's the, called the Parkville Stop. I think that's the main place they do it. And they have like these little events. So my friend Self Suffice, otherwise known as Kaim, the rap poet, uh, was there rapping with uh, Tang Sauce and other people playing trumpet and uh, Josh Mitchum on bass. And, and it was sort of like – and then other people came and started like just coming up there and – freestyling and spitting and he called people up and one guy got up and did it in Spanish and I thought wow I'm like this boring white guy in a Gil Scott Heron song right now. This is so terrific. So uh, there's going to be another thing like that. I think it's going to be more Latin music. It's on the 25th. Uh, check that out. Uh, it's like from 5 to 8 at that CT Fast Track stop. So you can take a little bus a bus station and turn it into a little moment of um, city art and fun. And that's good. Oh, and they had really good food there. They had like African food and Caribbean food. And it was great. And thanks uh, to everybody. And farewell to this studio. I wish I could say I would miss this studio, but I won't. Uh, but uh, I'll certainly be happy to see all of our wonderful panelists, Kate and Lucy and Brian, yet again in the new place. Yeah, 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 yeah.